Hey there. Welcome to the Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zena Heilingha. What if I told you time travel is real? And that not only can we see tens of millions of years into the past, but that we could also see into our future. And no, I'm not talking about a DeLorean. I'm talking about sediment. Ocean sediment, to be specific. When we found out about the absolutely astonishing work of assistant professor Martin Ziegler, an expert on paleo-oceanography, we knew we had to learn more. In this conversation, we learn about the ways modern scientists are studying the Earth's climate upwards of 50 million years ago, and how they're using that information to learn about what the future of Earth's climate could be. We learned about how climate has influenced human behavior, and maybe even the advancement of ancient culture. And finally, above all else, we discovered that geography is the space where the planet and its people come together. So Martin, we're so excited to have you on the show today. I mean, obviously this world is a bit out of mine and Zena's range, so we're very, very willing students of yours during this podcast. Um, what I'm most interested in in first learning is how you got interested in this topic in the first place. Yeah, hi. So um, I think I went into the subject uh, because I read a book which I f- thought was quite inspiring by Nick Middleton, geography professor at University of Oxford. And it had a nice idea. He The book basically had four chapters. It was called Extreme Places, I think. And the four chapters were about the hottest, the coldest, the wettest, and the driest place on Earth. Um, Yeah, I was fascinated by these places with extreme climates. And then I followed a course in in this field that I'm still in, paleoclimatology, paleoceanography, so the, the study of past climates and past oceans. And um, in one of those lectures in the course, I heard about this method where you could ideally uh, reconstruct temperatures through the past. So this is my main, the main focus of my work, still trying to, to reconstruct and uh, understand how the temperature on, on the planet changes through time and, and spatially. That's so cool. What I'm hearing is that you're sort of this like... Uh time traveler a bit, right? There is sort of this time travel reconstructing the past situation here going on. Um, So the word paleo-oceanography is quite a word that I had to practice a few times to say. (laughs) Um, And I guess like a, a funny anecdote for me is that when I was in bachelor's my first year, I decided to take an oceanography course because I thought it was about dolphins. And it was not about dolphins. So I guess just getting a little bit more background, what is content-wise what you study, since it's clearly not marine biology? Yeah, I mean, you could say that marine biology um, and dolphins and other mammals <laughs> could be part of uh, of the broad term oceanography or the broad field of oceanography as well. But 
often we understand that especially physical oceanography as the science that basically is trying to understand how the ocean uh, moves right how where how the currents uh, what what is driving the currents where the currents in the oceans are how the the deep water is connected to the surface and so on and there's other parts in in oceanography when we think about chemical oceanography so that's more looking at the different um, elemental cycles, for example, nutrients eh, that in the end also drive the the biosphere in the ocean. So all these things are, of course, connected. Um, but yeah, so that that is the field of oceanography, basically looking at the modern ocean. And in uh, paleoceanography, we are using that knowledge of the of the modern ocean. Um, but we are trying to basically go beyond the modern state and understand how variable can it actually be. So we're describing the modern ocean as it is today, but what did it look like 20,000 years ago during an ice age? Or what did it look like 100 million years ago when the continents were in different positions? And, and, and this is what we're also using then, this knowledge of the past to uh, get a better understanding what potentially can also happen to the oceans and the climate in the future. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is you're sort of like, I guess now I just it clicked to me that paleo as in like a paleontologist, right? That's someone that studies dinosaurs as far as I know, or at least Also that. dinosaurs <laughs> and other fossils, yeah. So I guess now that makes sense thinking about those words together. So you mentioned that you're studying the climate or the history of the climate through the ocean. So maybe this is a bit of a basic question, but why is it actually better to study the sediment in the ocean to understand the climate as opposed to land? Um, yeah, we we do not only study the sediments in the ocean, but um, the, the ocean has a big advantage as in that it is a, a, a big, deep basin. It continuously accumulates stuff sediments whereas on land you have areas where sometimes you get you know a little bit of dust and then it's being removed again so it it's more difficult to find a place on land that continuously accumulates something that we can then record or, or study later on to make a reconstruction but, but you do have places on land that also have these accumulations of uh, sediment right as in i think of the grand canyon well, of course, of course. So, so some of these um, sediments on land that we see today, even in the Alps, in most cases, they actually represent an environment of the past that was underwater. Wow, that's super interesting. So what I'm hearing is that the ocean is really where there's kind of like the biggest amount of data that you can collect and to a degree maybe even the most accurate because you're not getting, like you mentioned, this wind blowing away the dust. So we're talking a lot about how kind of generally you can use the sediment, but what is the method? Because I assume you're not just looking at mud. Um, well, you'll be surprised. <laughs> that is actually very often what we do as well. So you sort of, as you said earlier, you're kind of time traveling the further you drill into those sediments. And then we get these long, sometimes they are hundreds of meters long, these uh, cores that we get. So what's the deepest you can drill? 
you can drill quite deep, so hundreds of meters or even kilometers, but that typically doesn't give you any useful uh, climate archives anymore because when you go really deep, the, the sediments become so hard and, and lithified that it's difficult to study those. But I think the, the expedition, one of the expeditions that I was on, we drilled one core that was, I think, 600 meters. Uh, Quite impressive. Yeah, where do you put it on the boat? <laughs> yeah, so it's cut into pieces. It's cut into pieces of 10 meters. But then, yeah, then you have mud. Um, so what we do is we really look at the the composition of those sediments in those cores and what we in many places find are uh, thousands and thousands uh, of tiny microfossils. So you can look at them down core and you can, for example, look at the composition of species in those microfossils. So some species we know from the modern ocean represent areas that are warm and other species typically thrive in colder conditions. And if you go in a sediment down core and you find these warm and cold species coming back, uh, dominating and then disappearing again, you have already a simple climate record, right? That's already telling you something about temperature changes. And then the next step, and this is really what I'm working on, is looking at the, composi the chemical composition of these fossils. Because it turns out that sometimes, for example, the incorporation of a certain trace element is dependent on the water temperature in which the fossil or that animal lived. So using these methods, you can really actually very accurately um, reconstruct past temperatures on the order of, you know, sometimes half a degree or a degree. Wow, that's, that's actually really incredible. I had no idea that that's how you would do it. I think if someone gave me a core of sediment, I, I don't think I would know where to start. Um, so I guess it's good people like you exist. So kind of going more into this, this practical element. So we kind of talked a bit about how you do this, how you would even go about reconstructing the history of the Earth's climate. So what is the history of the Earth's climate? Like maybe talking about, let's say, 55 million years ago. Let's start there. What did, we, what did it look like? Yeah, so, so I mean, if, if you look at the entire history of the planet, you know, the planet is around 4.6 billion years old, and if you go to the very early history, we don't know that much because there's not many rocks still around. And if they're still around, they're heavily recycled in, in different tectonic processes and, and, and so on. So it really is this time period, what we call in, in geologic terms, this Cenozoic. So that's basically the time period after the dinosaurs, uh, which died out some 65 million years ago. And, and the period after that is... Uh, relatively well documented now. So, I mean, there's still a lot of gaps, but we, we have a pretty good understanding. And over this whole time period, over the last you know, 65 or 60, 50 million years ago, what we actually see is that the, that the Earth continuously cooled. So today we're actually living in the context of the last 50 or 60 million years, we are living in a relatively cold climate state which is maybe unexpected. We, you always hear about global warming, but in, in geologic terms, it's actually a re we are in an, in an ice house world because we have ice sheets. We have a big ice sheet on Antarctica. We have an ice sheet on Greenland. 
And if you look back 50 million years, that, that was not the case then. We were living in a, in a hothouse world. There was no ice sheet on Antarctica. There was no ice sheet on Greenland. Um, the temperatures in the deep ocean today, they are on the order of 2 degrees, 3 degrees. Back then they were on the order of 18 to 20 degrees. It's like a warm bath. <laughs> it was it was really it was really extremely hot, and this is something that we're trying to uh, to map, of course, for the past. And I was talking about the coldest places and the hottest places on Earth. So in in such conditions, you can imagine. So if the if the hottest place on Earth today is already thirty four degrees annual average, in a condition where the deep ocean is almost at freezing, you wonder how hot does it actually get in a hothouse period, right? So since then, so about 50 million years ago, when it was really hot to the period that we're living in today, it was this overall gradual cooling. And that is related in, in, in the first place to a continuous decrease in the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So essentially natural processes have removed greenhouse gases, CO2, from the atmosphere over this time period and that cooled the planet um, down further. So kind of the opposite of what's happening today. Uh, kind of the opposite of what's happening today, but then on much, um, much slower. It's a much slower pace. So in this time that the Earth was cooling, I imagine that the landscape of the Earth also sort of started vastly changing, right? Because we also, excuse me if I'm wrong here, experienced an ice age during this time as well, right? So did we kind of go too cold and then back to warm? What what, what was going on? Right. I was simplifying it a bit. So the, we had this long-term trend overall, but overprinted on that were also shorter-term variable states. So, so you can imagine, for example, 30 million years ago, the ice sheet on, the, on Antarctica appeared for the first time. And then something like three, three to two million years ago, the, uh, for the first time ice sheets, larger ice sheets on the northern hemisphere started uh, to grow. Sometimes going down into these what we call ice ages, when these ice sheets, ice sheets were so large that sea level were, um, was actually 120 meters lower than it is today. So all of that ocean water um, was frozen up on land and therefore the sea levels dropped. Can you maybe explain what induced this process of ice ages? Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's quite complicated, but... Um, yeah, so what is what is happening, if you have this long-term cooling trend that I described before, sometimes you are crossing so-called thresholds and, and, and tipping points. And what is happening when it's, it's getting colder, an ice sheet grows, and this ice sheet has is white and is reflecting a lot of sunlight. So you get a positive feedback, which causes even more cooling. So yeah, you sort of have, a, for a period of time, a sort of runaway effect. But um, there were also changes in ocean circulation that allowed the deep ocean to um, store for some time more carbon. And um, basically these, these ice ages that we see over the last one million years, they typically occur in cycles. And um, this, this cyclicity is set by changes in the, uh, in the Earth orbit. 
So it's actually the 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 um, yeah the parameters and uh, the, the the shape of the orbit and the tilt of the rotational axis of the orbit that influences the incoming sunlight and the distribution on the planet over time and between the seasons and between the latitudes. And that causes, in the end, changes in ocean circulation, which allow, as I said before, uh, to store more carbon. But if circulation changes again and uh, the deep ocean is sort of breathing out and uh, brings that carbon and the CO2 back into the atmosphere, you're getting out of an ice, ice age again. And th this is what we're in at the moment. Right? We are in one of these interglacial periods. That's so interesting. So it seems like carbon here is really like the special sauce. That's sort of maybe our dimmer switch on the climate, right? Yeah, yeah. There's many different factors that influence the, the climate in, in one place. But if you look at the average temperature of the planet, you basically need three ingredients. One is the incoming sunlight, uh, the radiation. The second one is the reflectivity of the Earth or the albedo. So how much of that incoming light is directly bounced back. And the third one is the greenhouse gas effect. And uh, CO2 is a very efficient uh, greenhouse gas. And it turns out that over long periods of time, but also shorter periods of time, that is a very important factor in uh, determining the, the average temperature on the planet. So we'll get to, I guess, the greenhouse gases today in a little bit. So what I'm curious about is that you're you were mentioning before that some of these time periods are like two or three million years old, which from my understanding, when we're really looking at the grand scheme of things, it's really, really short. It's a very small amount of time to even imagine that two or three million years is a small amount of time is crazy. But at some point during this time, early humans or some form of humans appeared, right? And so if, how did they deal with maybe all of these climate changes. Yeah, so so our earliest ancestors appeared some three to four million years ago in uh, Eastern Africa. And it's hard to prove, obviously, how climate change actually drove or uh, had an impact on evolution of early humans. But a lot of theories suggest that um, it played an important role. So, for example, in this, in this time period when the global average temperature was on a cooling trend. And what we see in Africa at the same time is that uh, large areas that were previously vegetated by rainforests, they changed into more savanna type vegetation. And one of the ideas is that an adaptation of these early humans was in order to actually find food to start walking. It's much more efficient than running on four feet. And that these types of changes in, in the environmental conditions in those periods already had an impact on, on early humans. So for me, I guess it is quite intuitive that the climate would impact maybe physically how humans had to adapt. It definitely makes sense that it's easier to walk in a savanna than it is to crawl in a savanna. Those are really intuitive things for me. But do we see something where maybe climate starts to impact behavior like culture yeah so when we talk about the first type of culture that the archaeologists see is in the the period what we call the middle stone age and this is the period of the first modern humans um, which is characterized by uh, what you call culture what what they call early industries so 
we see, for example, cave paintings or more complicated tools, weapons, or even simple forms of art. And again, it's it's difficult to to find a definite proof that the appearance of these um, cultures and industries was linked with climate change. But there's certainly very strong correlations between the appearance of these very early forms of culture and periods of rapid climate change. And when we place our, our climate records next to these archaeological finds, we find that these cultures appear in periods when the climate was probably more favorable in southern Africa. It was generally wetter. Um, in terms of vegetation, probably more, you can think of more lush, uh, a greener world. And in periods where it was drier and uh, there was probably in terms of vegetation also less food available, these cultures or evidence of these cultures disappeared. So we think that there is also there a very strong or potentially a strong relationship between the, the appearance of these early behavioral changes in, in our own species and um, rapid climate change. Could you say that if the climate is more favorable, that humans needed less time to survive and so had more time to put into culture or making cave drawings? There's different theories about that. And I'm not an uh, anthropologist, so I know the, the, the climate records better than I know uh, what the impact of that would have been on, on early humans, to be honest. But yeah, there are different uh, possibilities. So one of the ideas is that actually while the, the southernmost part of Africa became probably more favorable, parts that were a bit further in the north, so like, like uh, sub-Sahara, became uh, much drier at the same time. So... Um, it is possible that the overall population also became smaller or that there were certain, certain selective pressures around these rapid changes or these regional changes. So there, there, are, there are different possibilities, but one thing is, uh, is very striking is that there is such a, a good correlation between the appearance of these uh, cultural evidences and rapid climate change. Yeah, so I guess something that I would imagine could even be, I guess logical to me is that when there are these places that are becoming less favorable, those tribes or groups of homo, homo sapiens that wanted to survive had to move to the favorable parts. I can only imagine that then they ran into other homo sapiens. And perhaps that's where we're starting to get this human transfer of knowledge that has sort of snowballed into our world today. I, I think that is one of the possibilities so that there was a, a kind of pressure to adapt and probably to move and to exchange techniques and to, to adapt to constantly, or not constantly, but every now and then uh, changing conditions. So one of the, the big difficulties in this whole uh, subject is that while our climate records are really good and getting better and better and are continuous, the archaeological evidence is full of gaps. Mm. And ideally, you would like to have course also there a uh, continuous record but that is not uh, not possible unfortunately yeah that makes sense to me i think humans maybe we're not we only started recording history kind of recently so i don't think we're very reliable narrators in the first place so what i'm hearing is that maybe our ancestry was more being impacted by the climate right so we were sort of adapting to these changes happening organically 
today, what we are constantly hearing is that we as humans are impacting the the climate. So have our roles sort of shifted? I mean, obviously, we have to adapt to the changes that we made. But are we impacting the climate? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. I think this is really um, now supported by overwhelming evidence that uh, human activities, especially since the Industrial Revolution, has changed the climate already due to uh, greenhouse gas emissions and burning of fossil fuels. There's really no doubt about that. Um, what is still a little bit of a question when this process really started. So there are some theories and some studies that suggest that already... A couple of thousand years ago, the atmospheric CO2 concentration started to rise above what they would have been just by, for example, uh, deforestation, thousands of years at really large scale. So there are some theories that suggest that humans actually started to impact the planet uh, a long time before, at the late 19th uh, century. Yeah, so are we actually changing the planet or emitting more greenhouse gases more rapidly? than it would naturally? Like, is the impact that we're causing more rapid than the organic one? Definitely, yes. I think this uh, rate of change that we see, well, that we are seeing now, is potentially unprecedented in the last 50 million years. Um, so we had big shifts, for example. We were talking earlier about the ice ages 20,000 years ago that the, the planet was on average, something like 560 degrees cooler. So that's also a really big change. Now we're often not talking about this one and a half, two degree goal for the future. And we're already very worried about these these big changes for, for a good reason. But yeah, like 20,000 years ago, the, the planet was even six, five to six degrees cold, colder than it is now. So also a really big uh, difference, but this change from this very cold period to this warm interglacial that took probably 10,000 years. And uh, that's, of course, a different pace and a different uh, rate. And um, now if you would start to cool the planet now by 5 degrees within 100 years or 200 years, you can imagine that the civilizations would uh, be impacted uh, by this rate of change in a very different way compared to a change over 10,000 years when things go uh, much much slower. Are there any maybe like numbers you can think of that help demonstrate maybe the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere since maybe industrialization, just so that we get kind of a clear sense of it? Yeah, so um, the, the, the pre-industrial level was around 280 parts per million in, in the atmosphere, 280 ppm. And today... I think we are around 420. So to put this into perspective, um, I was talking earlier about uh, these periods in the past. So the last ice age, when it was 5 to 6 degrees colder, we had atmospheric CO2 concentrations of around 180. When we go back to these periods of 3 million, 3, 4 million years ago, we had values that were probably similar to what we have today, 400 maybe 450. And what did the world look like? Yeah, so exactly, what did it look like? So what we find in uh, records is that the world was probably two and a half to three degrees warmer. I'm talking about this period of the Pliocene when uh, earliest humans uh, 
were uh, living in Africa. Sea levels were probably on the order of 10 to 20 meters higher than they're today. Um, and that is because the ice sheets were smaller. There was probably no Greenland ice sheet. It was Greenland was actually green. The Western Antarctic ice sheet was probably also a bit smaller. So, and as I said, the, the vegetation in Africa, for example, looked different. So, so a lot of places that are wet today were probably even wetter than, and other places that are dry today were even drier. So, it was a more it was a warmer world. Uh, this is what a warmer world uh, looks like. Is it safe to say that our climate is becoming maybe more extreme? Yeah. So, so if you shift the baseline, so if you if you shift the average temperature of the planet by one or two degrees, you also shift the extremes. So the the extremes, the heat waves that we experience now, will then also get more extreme and the heat waves that we have today will become uh, more frequent. So in that sense, yeah, it's for, for our perspective and for what we are used to, um, things become more extreme, yes. So I think sort of through this conversation, I've been able to gather that by looking at the past, we all of a sudden have maybe a little bit of a gauge into the future of what our world could look like if we continue to um, omit so many greenhouse gases and what that could mean for vegetation and what that could mean for temperature and even to a degree what that could mean for our human behavior. Um, so I guess my thoughts are, is there a way to stop this or are we just sort of stuck here? Yeah, so um, it's absolutely clear and I think that there's no secret to anyone that we are trying to reduce our emissions as quickly as possible. But um, we are a little bit addicted to uh, emitting CO2. And it's hard, it seems very hard for humans to, uh, to stop that addiction. And I think we are getting slowly better at it. Sometimes you think, okay, given the, the size of the problem, it's too slow. But yeah, in the end, that's the only solution. We need to stop uh, burning fossil fuels if we want to prevent further warming. Wow, well, everybody stop driving. <laughs> that's uh, I, I like seeing humanity as a uh, addict. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> as I one big addict <laughs> that should kick uh, his habit. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually quite true. We keep trying to rationalize all the reasons we need to keep the habit. So yeah, I'm going to I'm going to start telling all these wasters that they're addicts. <laughs> <laughs> so it's also kind of interesting for me to hear that Although what you're talking about is like pretty massive amounts of time, you know, thousands, millions of years, we're constantly being told like we have a decade to stop. We have 15 years to stop. So is that sort of true? Like is our time frame much smaller to make an impact? I think it's uh, true if you have these goals in mind, eh? One, 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees. But on the other hand, you could also think, I mean, the, the sooner you stop, the better, because otherwise it will continue to warm. And uh, we, are, we have already very high CO2 levels. Um, the climate will still adapt to these levels. So even if we stop now, it will probably still warm a bit further and ice sheets will still melt a bit further. So this, the sooner we uh, solve the problem, the better. Wow. So... I guess we all have a bit of a mission leaving this podcast is to become a bit of advocates for everyone around us. But I guess just sort of 
finishing up here, it seems that throughout this conversation, we've talked about the ice sheets on the one hand and then the warming oceans on the other hand. And it seems like all of this is very global, even astronomical, if we're talking about the orbits as well. So to me as a geographer, and I'm sure Zena agrees, that it's so clear that this this topic of yours is so interlinked. It's not just, you know, one location or another location. There is a real geography to it. So since this is a podcast about geography and what we're really trying to do is understand what it is, uh, we want to ask you one final concluding question, which is to you. What is geography? Yeah, so... um... I'm not a geographer, I'm an earth scientist, there's a slight difference. So that means I'm really studying the the natural system. And geography to me, also when I come back to that book that I mentioned in the beginning, um, he went to these extreme places and was interested in the climate extremes, but he also went to these places to actually uh, visit the people that are living there. And he wanted to understand how do these extreme conditions actually affect people that are living? How do they cope? And why do they actually stay in those extreme conditions? And I think this is geography really bringing it all together. So looking at the world, how it is today, understanding it, and then also looking at humans and how they interact with the planet as it is. And I think geography in that sense is pretty unique as it tries to bring everything uh, everything together the geography of everything <laughs> uh, we got it <laughs> that's perfect yeah i love that that mentality that geography occupies this place between the human and the physical because i do think that it's so sort of ingrained in the discipline to understand not only how are humans impacting one another but how is the space that we're interacting and impacting us and vice versa So I really like that description, and I think I might steal that. This podcast was recorded at and made possible by Utrecht University. Yay.